Please remain standing. You can grab your Bibles if you have one close to you. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. It'll also be up on the screen above us. If you'll follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You may be seated. Thank you, Dr. Steve. Good morning. How's everybody? Oh, okay. All right. Well, hopefully you'll be doing better by the end of this. Uh, my name is Zach Lee. I'm the groups minister here at Parkway. Really excited to have you with us. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. <clears throat> when I was uh, in college, I had two roommates, and we lived off campus. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but college-age men are really, really bad at decorating things. And so in our apartment, we had three pieces of decorum. We had an inflatable blow-up fish that was nailed up to the wall like it's some sort of fishing trophy. We had a picture of Athens. I don't know why. Maybe we thought that was sophisticated, that a girl would come over and say, oh, you guys are so learned with your random picture of Athens on your wall. And my favorite piece that we had is we had a life-size cardboard cutout of the Joker from Batman. So... The Dark Knight had come out, and Heath Ledger's version of the Joker was there, and so we were at the mall or at a store or something like that, and, uh, and we saw this life-size cardboard cutout of the Joker that's like six foot tall, and we thought, we've got to have that in our apartment. So we bought it, and what we ended up doing with it is we ended up using it to terrify the other roommates. So what would happen is you'd come home from a long day at work, and you'd open your closet, and boom, there's the Joker ready to kill you, right? Or you'd go to pull back the shower curtain, and there's the Joker holding a loofah or something that somebody could put on the, his hand. Uh, you'd pull back your bed sheets, the Joker right there in your bed. We're just terrified all the time. Uh, there was a time I actually even came back, uh, and it was at night, and I was going to unlock the door, and I had a little flashlight on my keychain, and I opened the door, and the first thing that I shined it on was the face of the Joker. I'm pretty sure I screamed, help me, Batman. I mean, it was really terrifying. I about had a heart attack. And so that's what we had with this cardboard cutout of the Joker. Now, why did we do that? The answer is to terrify each other. Why is it terrifying? And here's why. Because the Joker will kill you. He's crazy. He puts the laughter in slaughter, right? He says, want to see a magic trick? And he does the pencil thing, and he kills people. He's terrifying. It's terrifying. So that's what we would do is because this idea of death and this idea of fear are linked together in the human heart. They're also linked together in the Bible. And so that's what we would end up doing in college. Now, today, before we talk about the resurrection, we need to know that one of our greatest enemies, 
as humans is death. It's death. No matter how much we progress in technology, we still die. No matter how much medical technology progresses, we can live longer than we used to be able to before we die. For all of our education, for all of our politics, we still go to war, we still have cancer, we still have all these things. And one of the great enemies of mankind is death. It's this one that we just can't seem to defeat on our own. No matter how uh, intellectual we become, how technologically savvy we become, we just can't defeat this, and it binds us to fear. How scary would a horror movie be if you couldn't die? Horror movies are crazy. They always have people that do stupid things. They stand in the dark. They don't have a weapon. There's a 100% chance that someone will fumble their keys getting into the door, and then they get killed. How scary would that be, though, if you were invincible? Bad guy breaks into your house with a knife, stabs you. The knife just bends, and you're like, what are you doing? Get out of my house. Wouldn't be very scary because death and fear are linked together and today we're going to see the solution because here's, the, here's a true fact for everybody in here. You ready? You are going to die. Happy Easter, right? It's a good Easter message. We are going to die. This is one of the great enemies of mankind, but in this text, we are given the solution to that. We are given a hope against that, all right? So let's start in verse 20 as we look through this text. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection is a bigger deal than just a really cool miracle Jesus did. Turning water to wine, that's pretty cool. Multiplying loaves, that's pretty cool. And then the resurrection is just really cool. It's bigger than that. The resurrection is where God the Father screams with a megaphone that Jesus is God's son, that he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is the one to be submitted to. God justifies, God vindicates Jesus at the resurrection. You see, when people die, they have a tendency to stay dead, which is why it's kind of a big deal when Jesus is raised from the dead. There are a lot of so-called messiahs, a lot of so-called prophets, a lot of these kind of things. There's a, uh, there's a guy that claimed to be the messiah named Simon bar Kokhba and led a revolt against the Romans. They even minted coins with the year one on him for his reign as this messiah, but the reason that as I say his name, most of you in here have not heard of Simon bar Kokhba, but you've heard of Jesus, is because Simon bar Kokhba stayed dead, all right? But there's more to it than that. It's not just the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. Look at this next little phrase here. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, in Texas, we don't really have spring. We have kind of summer with allergies, but, but bear with me for this. In the spring in Texas, you'll start to see a tree that starts to bud with a little flower. And that's a symbol that more flowers are coming. Or if there's an apple tree, it'll have one little fruit start to develop, and that means that more fruit is coming. I've never seen an apple tree that just produces one apple and then falls off. Or a shoot of wheat or a shoot of corn will come out of the ground, and that's a symbol and a sign that more wheat or more corn is going to be coming. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means there's more resurrection coming for us. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first fruit on the resurrection tree, okay? Here's what I want you to know biblically about resurrection, okay? Three things. I want to show you a bunch of passages so that this text makes sense. In Jewish thinking, in Christian thinking, in the Bible, resurrection has three things attached to it. I want you to memorize these or write these down. These are really important. 
Resurrection, first of all, is an end times event in the Bible. It is an end times event, okay? It's something that God does at the end of time. This is one of the reason why, reasons why people freak out when Jesus is raised from the dead is because Jesus is doing in the middle of time what the Jews are expecting to happen at the end of time. So it's an end times event. Number two, resurrection is for everyone. We will all be bodily raised. If that's new information to you, that's classic, historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. That's what the Bible teaches. I'll show you some passages in a second. So yes, Jesus is raised from the dead, but he's the first one to partake in the resurrection, capital R, that we will all partake in. And then number three, resurrection is bodily. Resurrection is bodily. It's not that Jesus' body just decays in the ground and his spirit goes to heaven. He's raised bodily. He tells the disciples, look at his nail holes. He eats fish with them. Ghosts don't eat fish. It's a bodily resurrection. You'll notice one of the songs we didn't sing today, which a lot of time churches sing on uh, Easter is, uh, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's not what we mean. Yes, through the Spirit, in a sense, he does, but that's not what we mean by resurrection. That's not how we know that Jesus is raised. We know that he's raised because there was an empty tomb. And so I want to show you some passages in the Bible. I'm just going to give you a bunch of them that show you three things, that resurrection was an end times idea, it's for everybody, and that it's bodily. That's bodily. Let me show you some passages. Let's start with Isaiah. We'll start in the Old Testament. Did you know, by the way, that resurrection is an Old Testament idea, not just a New Testament idea? Let's look at it. In contrast to judgment, Isaiah 26, 19 says, your dead shall live, their bodies, plural, everybody, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Notice, it's an end times event. It's for everybody, and bodies get up out of the ground. Daniel 12, 2, in talking about the end, the context of Daniel 12 is about these kind of end times events. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, again, general, end times, bodily, sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now let's jump into the New Testament, okay? We'll see this as well. John eleven twenty three through 24. This is where Jesus has a buddy named Lazarus who dies, and he's talking to this lady named Martha, and here's what he says. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now look at Martha's response. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's saying, duh, Jesus, we're Jews. We already know he's going to rise at the end. That's their expectation. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to raise him now. I'm going to raise him now. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and what? Body in hell. I heard a guy one time mockingly say against Christianity, how can people hurt forever in hell if they're just a soul? How can a soul burn? And I thought to myself, Matthew 10, who can cast both soul and body into hell. Did you know the eternal state of humanity is bodily? Okay. Luke 14, 14. Jesus says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's something that he expects will happen to all people at the end of time. Resurrection is a thoroughly biblical idea. It's what the Jews expected would happen. It's what happens to humanity in the end. 2 Timothy 2.18, Paul is rebuking false teachers when he says, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, he can't be talking about Jesus' resurrection because that had already happened at this point. 
He's talking about false teachers who are saying that resurrection that we all partake in, we missed it. We missed it, and he calls them false teachers. Matthew twenty two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Notice that we will be resurrected. We won't be like angels in how we look or something. We're like angels in that there's no marriage in heaven. Philippians 3.11, Paul's hope is that he preaches the gospel in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So with all that in mind, all those biblical passages, I'm hoping that I've sufficiently beat that dead horse. But here's what I want you to see. If resurrection in the Bible is an end times event for everyone and it's bodily, what then does it mean if Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection? It means the end has begun in Jesus and it means for those who are in Christ, we will be raised as well. How do I know when I die, I don't just take a big dirt nap? And it's because Jesus was raised and I'm in Christ. And I'm in Christ, okay? This is a thoroughly biblical concept. Again, if this is new to you, this is not new to Christianity. This is not even new to Judaism. There's even a book outside of the Bible, which is not part of the Bible. I'm not saying that it is, but there's a book even outside of the Bible called Second Maccabees. And in 2 Maccabees 7, these Jews are being persecuted by this pagan king. His name is Antiochus IV. And this king is trying to get them to renounce their Judaism, to deny God, to break his law, to do these kind of things. And he's torturing this group of Jews. He's cutting off their hands, cutting out their tongue. He throws one of them alive in a burning, searing cauldron. And one of these Jews steps up to Antiochus and says, you can cut off my hands because I'll get them back at the resurrection. Isn't that awesome? That's what I'm called to, a ministry of Christian taunting. That's what I love, all right? It's bodily. It's end times event. It's for everybody, as we will be raised in perfected bodies. Not zombies, not corrupted and gross and these kind of things, but perfected bodies. I was actually uh, driving down the road a couple months ago, and uh, it was at night. And you know those construction signs with the, the yellow letters that say things like, you know, merge right or construction ahead or something like that that they put on the side of the road. I was driving on the service road and there was one of those signs and it said, caution zombies ahead. Now, a normal person who's smart would have thought to themselves, I bet somebody hacked the sign. I bet some kid got on there and hacked the sign so it would be really funny. But for about 10 seconds, I was like, it's happening. I've been waiting for this, and I'm getting ready for this apocalypse for these zombies or whatever before it hits me. Zach, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. It's not like that, all right? It's not zombies. It's not corrupted. You're not crazy. It's a perfected body, the way your body should have been without the marring effects of sin. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Let me pause real quick. I want you to see something. In Christianity, we hold that Jesus is both truly and fully God and that he is truly and fully man. If he's not really God, he can't really save you. And if he's not really man, he can't be your substitute on the cross. You need both. How much of God is Jesus? The same as God. How much of human, human, how human is Jesus? The same amount of human as Adam. And so I want you to see in this text, even it's speaking to the clear humanity of Jesus as well. He is both fully God and fully man. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay. The Bible here is going to speak of Christ and Adam 
as sort of like these ambassadors for humanity, okay? So we, as Westerners, as Americans, tend to be very individualistic. In the Bible, they they see things a lot more in corporate terms. And so Christ and Adam are seen as ambassadors. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who goes to represent a larger group of people, right? That's what an ambassador is. And if that person represents you poorly, things go bad. And if that person represents you well, things go well. So let's say I'm an ambassador for the United States, and they send me to, I don't know, Zimbabwe. And I go up to the president of Zimbabwe, and I say, America, and I hit him in the face. What is he going to think of all Americans? Good things or bad things? Bad things, because I haven't represented my people well. Okay? And so Adam and Christ are kind of like these ambassadors for humanity. How did Adam represent us versus how did Christ represent us? Uh, I uh, used to rock climb when I was in high school. I don't do it anymore because I don't have the time, and I'm not quite as skinny and spidery as I once was. And so I would do rock climbing, but I don't know if you know this or not. We don't have a lot of mountains in, in Texas. Sorry, my mic go out. In Texas. And, uh, and so I had to go to Arkansas because there were some mountains there. Arkansas is really pretty. And some of the stereotypes that I'd heard about Arkansas were true. No offense. I saw a kid who was 10 years old carrying a shotgun just walking down the highway, just over his shoulder, 10-year-old kid. The guy that welcomed us to our hotel had no teeth, and in our hotel room, in the middle of the floor, there was this hot spot. I don't mean like Wi-Fi. I mean like the floor was just burning hot. So we'd step on it, and we're like, why is that burning hot? And we'd step off. No idea why, to this day, what that magic portal to Narnia might have been, okay? But one of the things we kept seeing while we were in Arkansas is everybody was super nice to us, super nice to us. They'd stop us. They'd ask us where we were from, how we were doing. We were sitting down at dinner at uh, Chili's because we're big spenders, and as we're eating Chili's, the people in the booth next to us turn around in the middle of dinner, and they're like, hey, where are y'all from? And they were just super nice. So now, because of that experience, anytime I meet someone from Arkansas, I just assume they're going to be super nice, right? So Adam and Christ are seen as these ambassadors. They represent larger groups than just themselves. You even see this in Judaism outside of Christianity. I'll give you another quote here. This comes from a book that's not in the Bible called 4th Ezra 7, 118. It says this of Adam. They say to Adam, O Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. Okay, I want to show you a little picture of what this text is talking about. We've got a little picture here of two circles that we're going to throw up on the screen. And what I want you to see is that in one of these pictures, there is a uh, title with Christ. You see it right there. And the other one is Adam, okay? Adam, as he is the ambassador for humanity, as we are all in Adam genetically, if you want to think of it that way, or as the Bible would say, in his loins, when Adam sins and rebels against God, the following things occur. One, you see sin. You see uncleanness. You see shame. You see sickness. You have to realize Adam and Eve are not getting sick before the fall. Sickness now comes into the world. You see demonic oppression now come into the world. All because of Adam and Eve's sin. Genesis 1 and 2, everything's great. Genesis 3, mankind turns their back on God. You see sin. You see sickness. You see demonic oppression. You see now separation from God. God was dwelling with Adam in Eden. Heaven and earth were together. But now because of sin, you see this separation between heaven and earth, separation between God and man. And you also see separation between other humans. Shortly after the time of Adam and Eve, you get things like Cain killing Abel. 
You start to see murder and strife and theft and adultery and all these kind of things. And ultimately, you see death. When you eat of this fruit, you will die. You see death spiritually and separation from God, and you see death physically now come in because of Adam. Now, Jesus is the anti-Adam. He is the last Adam. He is the Adam that Adam should have been. And with Jesus, you see the opposite of each one of these things. Instead of sin, you see his death on the cross to provide forgiveness for sin. Instead of sickness, you see Jesus heal people. He tells those who are blind they can now see. Those who are lame, they can now walk. You see him casting out demons. You see all these exorcisms and stuff he's doing in the Gospels. Jesus brings about fellowship with God. Through Christ, you can have access to the Father. You see peace between mankind. There's meant to be harmony and unity, for example, in the church. And you see the solution to death, which is resurrection. It's resurrection. Listen, as a kid, when I would read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I kind of just thought Jesus was doing a bunch of cool miracles, like he's just this really great magician. I'm like, oh, cool, he healed a guy. That's awesome. Oh, he cast out a demon. That's great. He multiplied loaves to turn them into bread. That's awesome. Great. Cool. That's not what's going on. He's not merely just doing cool miracles. Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall in his ministry. He's reversing the effects of Adam. When Jesus heals a guy, that is an act of war against Satan. That's what's going on when Jesus heals somebody. When Jesus casts out a demon, that is an act of war against Satan. Jesus is coming to put the world back to rights and to get us back to Eden and even better. That's what he's doing in his ministry. It's not just cool miracles, although they certainly are cool miracles. It's him reestablishing the kingdom of God as it was in Eden. It's getting God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus is doing. Look at the last part of this verse. Very last part here of verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let me ask you this question. How do you get in Adam? How do you get in Adam? Just by being born. Just by being a human, we are linked to Adam. So in Adam all die. Notice, though, that it's not just Christ comes and there's universal salvation for everyone. It's for those in Christ shall people be made alive, okay? So notice that you're born into Adam, but you have to be born again into Christ. Everyone's linked to Adam just by being a human, but you're only linked to Christ through faith. It's not just universal death, universal salvation. It's universal death for everyone in Adam, which is everyone, and salvation for everyone who's in Christ, which are only those who know Christ. But look at the end of this phrase here where it says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, I need to tease something real quick. I need to tease something. Sometimes we, and I don't mean here at Parkway, but I just mean in Christianity generally, sometimes we have kind of a misconception of what heaven will be like, and we have a misconception uh, of the eternal state of humanity, okay? So think about it. You'll hear this a lot of times if you go to a funeral. Somebody will get up there, and they will say crazy things. So we have a tendency sometimes in Western Christianity to think what happens is when you die, your body goes into, ground, into the ground, and then you float up as this like naked baby angel or something. You have wings. I don't know why we have wings. We don't become angels. Everyone's playing a harp. I don't know why there are no other instruments. I feel like Tim should be like a guitar angel or something like this, right? And heaven is seen as kind of this floaty cloud place 
where there's always elevator music playing, right? Nothing exciting, nothing too intense, just elevator music. And it's kind of a place where a golfer never hits a slice and a fisherman never misses a catch. And it's this place where we just like eternally pursue our hobbies or something down here. Everybody look at me. That's not biblical, all right? That is not a biblical conception. Yes, heaven is a real place. And yes, when you die, if you know Christ, you go rest with Christ in heaven. Yes and amen to that. But here's what you need to hear. That's not the end of the story according to the Bible. To quote one theologian, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. We are interested in life after, life after death. What the Bible teaches is that God will one day raise us, that heaven and earth will again come together, that our hope is not in heaven, it's in resurrection. There is a, quote, new heavens and new earth. God is about redeeming all of the cosmos. If you die and your body just rots forever and God just saves your soul, you're just half saved. You're not fully redeemed. God is about redeeming the whole cosmos, submitting everything to Christ, that we will be raised bodily. He's here about saving all of us. God's plan when mankind sinned was not to just scrap all of material creation and just suck us out of here like outer space spacemen or something. He is about redeeming all of creation, heaven and earth. That's what he's doing. Notice, by the way, in the book of Revelation, we don't go up to the new Jerusalem. It comes down to us. Heaven again is united with earth as it was in Eden. That's the hope. That's the hope that we have. Okay. Verse 23. Verse 23. Verse, let's do 23 through 27a. We'll go through the first part of 27. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. So notice the order. He's going to say, let me give you the order of how these things are going to happen. Christ is going to be raised, then those who know Christ will be raised, then comes the end. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Let me show you some passages elsewhere as well. Psalm 110.1 says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ephesians 1.22 says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Let me explain what's going on in this passage with all this putting somebody under somebody else's feet language, okay? So let me tell you what's going on. There's an analogy that we've used here a few times at Parkway, and I want to use it again because I think it's a really, really helpful analogy, Okay. It's the analogy of the difference in World War II between D-Day and V-Day, okay? D-Day is when the Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, okay? D-Day is, and pay attention to this phrase, D-Day is the beginning of the end of World War II, okay? Once the troops take the beachhead at Normandy, the Allies are going to win the war. It's going to happen. Hitler is going to be vanquished, we're marching towards Berlin, we are going to win the war at that point. But, is there still more war to be fought? There is. Will troops still get shot? Will troops still, sorry, must be some unconfessed sin in this room or something, my mic keeps going out, okay. Uh, will there still be troops that get shot and shelled and stabbed as they make their way towards Berlin? Yes, there will be, there will be. But contrast that with V-Day, Victory Day, where the, we've won. 
there's champagne in the streets and people are dancing and there's confetti falling down. And, you know, there's that famous picture of that sailor who like dip kisses that nurse, you know, that's really famous. That's V-Day. Here's what you need to know. Jesus's first coming is like D-Day. When Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the grave, a decisive death blow has been dealt to the enemy. Jesus and his church will win. Jesus' first coming is the beginning of the end of everything, okay? But contrast that with what we're still waiting for. We're still waiting for V-Day. We're still waiting for Christ to come back where there is dancing and laughing and champagne in the streets. God's kingdom is already but not yet. It's already begun in Christ and we will be successful because Christ has already won. But in the meantime, we push on towards Berlin. We push on towards Berlin and we wait for his second coming. And in the meantime, he is submitting all things under his feet. This text says both Christ submits things under his feet and the Father submits things under his feet because those go together, right? Those things go together. So in this text, we see the pronouncement of submission to Jesus' lordship given in the kingdom of God. In the beginning, Jeff talked about this some this morning in our theological equipping class. In the beginning of the Bible, the story starts out with a king, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one Trinitarian God of the Bible, rules over everything, and when you have a good ruler, things go well. By the way, that's why people get fired up about politics, because if you have a good ruler, things go well, and if you have a bad ruler, things go poorly. We're wired to care about who rulers are, okay? In Genesis 1, things go really well, because guess who's in charge? God. He's the king, and things function really well in his kingdom. And in Genesis 3, mankind rebels against God and commits treason, and they give their allegiance to a rival king. They give their allegiance to a rival kingdom, meaning the devil, the devil. So when Christ shows up on the scene and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, and he casts out the demons and he heals the sick and he dies for sin and he's raised from the dead, he is reestablishing the rule and reign of God as it was on Eden on earth. That's a big deal. We live in the most exciting time to be born in world history. You know why? Because if there's any time where you have to be drafted in the army in World War II, it's better to do it after D-Day. That's where we live. We are, Christ has been successful. We are waiting for his second coming. And in the meantime, we know that he will win. That's what it means, by the way, when it says, if you look in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. What that means is anything that's not submitted to Christ. Any worldly authority, any demonic authority, anything that rebels against the reign of Christ. God has always ruled and reigned. When we talk about God's kingdom coming, we say, what would it look like in the world if there was no opposition to God's reign? There was no rebellion. There were none of the effects that we saw were brought into the world through Adam. That's what we mean. And look in verse 26. Why did I start with a weird, scary illustration of the Joker and death on Easter? Look in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's our hope as Christians. The solution to mankind's problems will not come from us and our collective wisdom. It will come from the God-man who's been raised and will one day raise us. Now let's look at this last part here. Verses 27b through 28. Paul's gonna give a quick theological corrective. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What on earth does that mean? What is all this subjection language in this text, okay? 
Paul is simply offering a theological corrective to a possible misunderstanding, okay? What, what Paul is saying is everything will be submitted to Christ. And someone's like, what about the Father? And he's like, no, not the Father. The things I've been talking about, powers and authorities and these kind of bad things will be submitted to Christ. So he's just trying to offer a quick theological corrective. He's not talking about the Father submitting to Christ. He's talking about all things submitting to Christ, accepted him who submitted all things to Christ. That's confusing. I'll give you a little example. People, a lot of times, when you say something, will take your analogy and go in a really weird direction. Anybody married? No? All right. That's, that happens. I was talking to a guy one time, and I was trying to, to get across to him this idea that somebody could be an evil person and still say something that is true. They could still say a true fact. Do we agree with that? They can. But here's the analogy I gave him. I said, listen, even Hitler believed that two plus two is four, and he's like, you like Hitler? I'm like, what? No, let me just be clear. Let me explicitly state, I don't like Hitler. That's not my point. My point is that somebody really evil could say something true, like two plus two is four. Okay, that was my only point, but he took it in a weird direction. By the way, I don't know why I'm using all these World War II analogies. Uh, I'm not an angry person, maybe too much History Channel, but uh, go with me on this. So he took my analogy in a weird way. That's what Paul's trying to correct. He says, everything will be submitted to Christ. And they say, what about the Father? And he's saying, that, that's not my point. My point is anything in opposition to Christ will be submitted to him, will be submitted to him, okay? Now look at this last little phrase here. This is fascinating. Things in subjection under him. Look at this very last part of verse 28. That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean something like everything becomes God or something weird like that. It's not a metaphysical claim. Uh, actually, there was a, a lady that was at a church, a previous church where I was, and uh, when I first met her, I felt like something was off spiritually about her. She, she seemed to be godly, and she said she was a Christian, but there seemed to be something that was off. And the more I hung out uh, around this lady, this was... Uh, with, we did it with this, this was with a group of friends. Uh, I'm married now, I just don't hang out with ladies. But this was with a group of friends, and this was before I was married. The more we hung out with this lady, she started to say things that sounded a little bit off, and she eventually ended up leaving the church. She was a pantheist. That's someone who believes that God is everything. The tree is God, and the mountain's God, and the toilet's God, and the devil's God. If, if everything's God, then nothing is God. And she believed that everything was God and that you could worship a tree because you were worshiping God and you could worship the mountains because you were worshiping God and these kind of things. And one of the things she pointed to was this text. She said, look, the text says God will be all in all. And we had to say, you know what's really important in this text? Context. Context is like super important when interpreting the Bible. And so in this text, what it means for God to be all in all means is that there's no opposition to his reign. It means mission accomplished that there is peace. It's kind of like if I say when the allied troops finally march in Berlin, peace will be all in all. That doesn't mean everything becomes peace. It means peace is all pervasive. The reign of Christ will be all pervasive. That's what it means. I'll end with this. It's a little analogy that uh, a buddy of mine who's a pastor used. I think it's really helpful. So I want to end with this and tell you what our hope is this Easter on this resurrection for whatever you're dealing with, okay? So let's say that you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. Can I get an amen? Yeah. yeah, all right? Not just America's team, God's team. Okay. And if you say, well, Zach, how can they be God's team if they lose? Well, Israel's God's team in the Old Testament, and they lose all the time, so take that. Uh, so let's say you're a Cowboys fan, 
and you're wanting to record the game on Sunday. You've got something to do Sunday afternoon, so you want to record the game, okay? You TiVo it or DVR it or whatever you use to record it, and so you're going to watch the game later. But let's say you have a friend who doesn't know that you're going to watch the game later, and so they end up texting you the final score. They text you the final score before you've even seen the game, and by God's mercy and grace, the Cowboys have won, okay? Now, we don't like spoiler alerts with sports. Spoiler alerts are really good when it comes to the Bible, okay? We want to know how this thing ends. When you go to watch that football game, you're going to watch it with a sense of hope for your team because you know that they're going to win in the end. So when they fumble, is that really a fumble? Yes. Is it really frustrating? Yes. But you're able to watch that fumble with a sense of hope because you know they're going to win in the end. And when they throw an interception, which they will do for some reason, they must do it, will you get frustrated and throw your Dr. Pepper at the TV and scream, yes. But then when you calm down, you'll think, but it's okay. They're going to win in the end. So though you see these frustrations, you know that your team wins in the end, and so you have a sense of hope while you watch that game. That's why this passage is given to us this morning. So whatever you're going to deal with in life, you're going to have people die that you're close to. You might have a spouse cheat on you and leave you. Uh, You might have kids who rebel. You might get cancer. You might lose your job. You might not have any money. You might be stabbed in the back. Someone might betray you. When those things happen, they're real and they hurt. But you're able to assess them with a lens that says, V-Day's coming. Hope is coming. One day I won't have to deal with that anymore. Right now we press on towards Berlin, but one day we will dance in the streets. That's the hope of resurrection. That is the solution to mankind's problem, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which allows us to be raised and God to put the world back to rights. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, let me say this, and then we'll uh, have the men come up to serve communion. I don't know where everybody's at in here spiritually today. I remember a guy sitting down with me when I was in college and he asked me if I were to die and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would I say? And I remember thinking through all these different answers. Would I say, well, I've I've been baptized. I prayed a prayer when I was six. I walked down an aisle. I shook somebody's hand. Uh, I read my Bible. I, I go to church. I'm generally a good person. If any of those are your answer, by the way, that is not Christianity. The answer to that question is simply, because Jesus has died and been raised for me. That's it. So I don't know where you're at spiritually today, but here's my hope. My hope is that if you don't know Jesus, that you would know him. If you're here today and you're wondering, what does God want from me? Here's what he wants from you. He wants you to become a Christian. That's what he wants from you. He wants you to repent and turn away from your sins. He wants you to cry out to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus will give it. Bow the knee to King Jesus. As Jeff said this morning, I thought it was helpful. It's kind of like a king has come and surrounded you with an army and you are going to be defeated. But then the king comes up to you and says, I will offer you a full pardon if you'll but lay down your arms. So wherever you're at today, I don't know whether or not you're a Christian or not a Christian or maybe you think you're a Christian and are not. I was that way for seven years thinking I was a Christian and I wasn't because I had prayed a prayer and been baptized. Salvation is not just something like you decide. Salvation is something God does to you. Has that happened for you? Has Christ wrecked your life? Has he turned it where all your affections, your highest affections are on Christ? You hate your sin. You just don't hate being caught. You hate your sin. If you don't know 
or you're not sure, here's some great news. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. One of the great things about the kingdom of God is that the way you get in there is by simple repentance and faith. You cannot earn it. You cannot do better. You cannot strive more. You can simply lay on your face and beg God for mercy, and he gives it. And he gives it. Cry out to him. If you have a lot of questions, you don't really know what to do, you're confused, you want to talk to one of us, grab a staff member, grab an elder. We'd love to grab coffee. We'd love to chat with you. Let us know how we can help. But as I pray and the men come forward to serve communion, if you don't know Christ, would you ask him to reveal himself to you? Would you ask him to become real to you, to change your life? We love you. If you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. Thanks for joining with us this Easter. Let's pray as the guys come up to get ready to serve communion. Father, we can only come before you and even call you Father because of Easter. That if there is no Easter, who cares about Christmas? Who cares about the cross? Who cares about those things? If Jesus is rotted away in some tomb somewhere, none of this matters. Let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But because you've raised Christ, we can eat and drink and be merry for yesterday we were dead, but today we're alive. And so we love you and we praise you. Uh, I ask that you would bless this time. I thank you for this chance just to gather and to marvel that you would just take a bunch of rebellious sinners who hate you and rebel against you and you would send your son to die for them and then make them your children. That blows my mind. Why would you do that? How gracious are you? So we love you. We thank you. It's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen.